Welcome to The Good Enough Mother. I'm your host, Sophie, and in this podcast, I offer you reflective discussion on all things motherhood, womanhood, identity, relationships, and grief, drawing on evidence-based information and personal experiences. You are listening to episode 11, Toddler Tantrums. Please remember to leave me a review and subscribe to this podcast if you're enjoying the episodes. This week's episode is particularly designed for mothers or people caring for toddlers and young children who may be feeling challenged by their tantrums or meltdowns or outbursts or any other way you'd like to phrase it. Children are all different, of course, and your child's personality will be a contributing factor as to how they respond to discomfort and frustration and these big feelings that are overwhelming, as well as how strong-willed or easygoing they are in their personality. But it's safe to say that there are very few small children and toddlers who never have these big feelings and who never struggle with how to manage them. And this struggle, I think, often reflects our own struggle. I think that there really is very little preparation and help that we're given as parents to deal with these uh, emotions in young children and their big feelings and behaviours. So think about it, where do you learn this stuff if you don't go out and actively seek it? Our models for how to deal with and respond to tantrums and behaviour in our children come predominantly from three places. Our own childhood, from our community and those who surround us, and our culture. How we were disciplined and responded to when we were a toddler and a small child has a big impact in how we will respond to our own children. It's often the default that we turn to, to do to others what was done to us. Or it can be the opposite, so we recognise the ways that we were responded to and we explicitly decide that that's what we want to avoid and so we actively shape our disciplining strategies and responses to be the opposite of what was done to us. There are very few generally, who are modelled this gentle, conscious, reflexive and respectful way of discipline and parenting. And this goes back to what I discussed in episode 6 about parenting paradigms and the old school or traditional ways of discipline, if you will. And this isn't necessarily a judgement on that way of doing things. It's an understanding that with our social, cultural and historical context and circumstances, our behaviour is going to be shaped and impacted by that. If you're listening to this podcast, I think it's fairly safe to assume that you are someone who is reflective about your parenting, so you actively want to think about the way that you parent and the way that you're raising your child. You see it as an important and integral part of your life that you do seek to develop. You may question these older paradigms either from a philosophical or a theoretical standpoint, or perhaps you've just tried these strategies and have found them not to work. Parenting from a place of consciousness, respect and understanding can sometimes feel like an uphill battle, not just within ourselves and not just with our children, but also with the rest of the world. For example, think about the comments about, you know, the terrible twos or the expectations of small children to sit still and quietly. The underlying assumption is, I think, that we as their parent are their ruler and they're our little subject and they misbehave and and be naughty to seek attention. And there's also this assumption that our children's behaviour is a direct correlation and reflection of our capacities as a parent. This just isn't true, and none of these assumptions are particularly helpful to either our children or to us as parents. 
What I'm going to do in this podcast episode is to dispel some of the myths of toddlerhood and behavioural expectations of young children to give you insight and understanding of the neurotypical development and capacity for young children to regulate their behaviours and emotions. I am going to go a little bit beyond this because I think just understanding something does not necessarily make measurable and changeable impacts in our lives. But this understanding is a crucial first step. See it as the foundation because without it, we cannot fully come from the place of compassion, empathy and leadership that we want to. So I'm going to share a personal example from my mothering with my daughter to really give you a practical insight into some of these theories. I'll also share some strategies that you can implement yourself. And what I want is for you to come away from listening to this episode feeling more confident, more supported and more empowered with some things that you can try with some more compassion and empathy, not just for your child, but also for yourself. I want you to be able to take a big breath and release from your shoulders the weight or the burden of carrying all of this. I also just want to say that I'm right here with you. As you'll find out from listening further, the reason I've been motivated to go to the extent of this research and learning and exploring that I have on this subject has come from my own challenges in navigating toddler discipline and behaviour. I have a quiet chuckle to myself when I see Facebook advertisements or Instagram adverts from so-called parenting experts selling resources or guides that promise to turn you into a peaceful, calm mother who doesn't lose their patience, who doesn't yell, whose child transforms into a cooperative and self-regulating little angel, if you just follow these steps, right? And then if you do follow the steps and you implement that advice and you still face struggle, then you must just not have followed the steps correctly, right? You didn't try hard enough. You weren't enough. There must be something wrong with you or your child. Obviously, I contest this. There's not a parent or a parenting expert, for that matter, in this world who gets it right all of the time, who never loses their patience, who doesn't have hard days, whose child is always cooperative and polite and well-mannered. This doesn't exist because this is not inherent within our nature as human beings or within our dynamic and interpersonal relationships with our children. It is not only unrealistic, but it is misleading to try and say that you can be transformed to a place where you don't experience challenge or struggle, because this challenge and struggle is actually an integral part of the dynamics between ourselves and our children and within ourselves individually. It is the soil within which we grow. We would stagnate otherwise. We grow through discomfort, so know that whatever challenge you are facing right now, it is purposeful. Whatever your child is currently struggling with, it will teach you both. I know this not only from the research I've dived into about child development, but also from my own experience. If you're being challenged by some behaviours of your child, I am here with you. I'm really, really here with you. I've been on a big journey around a particular aspect of my daughter's behaviour and I have been torn about how much of it to share publicly. But I think what I've decided is that the most honest and authentic and helpful thing to do is to share a little of it. And it'll hopefully give you some insights into the importance and usefulness and the actual application of some of the information I'm sharing in this episode. My daughter is two years old and when she struggles with uncomfortable feelings or big emotions like anger or frustration or anxiety or tension, 
she has two things that she she does, two go-tos. When she's around other small children, she reaches out and pulls their hair. And when she's at home with just me, or she's out with just me for that matter, it's throwing, throwing whatever she's holding on to. So I would ask you, does your child have a thing that they do that you particularly struggle with? Um, examples that are common, I guess, are throwing things, um, yelling or just screaming is another. So is running away, so physically running off. Biting can be another fairly common one that can be linked with managing fear or anger or frustration or discomfort. And others are hitting or kicking or pushing. Any behaviours that seem aggressive or disruptive and are displaying dysregulated emotion. So when my daughter first started pulling other children's hair, I had no idea how to handle it. Thinking back to what I knew about toddler behaviour and development, it was what I'd witnessed with other people's children and in our culture and society. So those are punishments, such as taking something of value away that she's playing with, and time out or the naughty corner. I was also hugely triggered by her behaviour, feeling shame and embarrassment and anger and disappointment that her actions were causing hurt and upset in another child, and I felt that this was somehow a reflection of something that I was or wasn't doing. But not only did none of the things I tried to discipline her with work, they actually made her behaviour worse. The more angry and frustrated I became, the more she did it. She came to recognise the association and would go and put herself in the timeout corner, for example, and she'd just sit there until I came to get her. I tried ignoring it. I tried punishments like leaving and going home straight away. Nothing was working. I was at my wit's end. So I did what I've been trained to do as a sociologist. I researched. I dived into books, into articles online, into peer-reviewed journals. I spoke to child psychologists. Um, I sought out parenting mentors. I did some coaching and training with Nourishing the Mother, Julie Tanner and Bridget Wood. I set out to absorb basically as much information as I could so that I could try and map out and give myself a holistic picture of what our knowledge base says on challenging toddler behavior so that I felt once I had this all mapped out, I could then implement, experiment with, and find a strategy that would help my daughter and I. And it's only been through this process of learning and discovery that I'm sharing this information through this podcast episode, and I hope that through The Good Enough Mother, I can streamline things for other mothers seeking this same information so they don't have to go out and do the same extent of research and reading and processing that I did. Related to this, I'm actually currently creating a program which is going to be a five-module quick and easy training on understanding and responding to toddler tantrum. So it condenses down, interprets and presents all of the research I've done in a really accessible way. It'll go into greater detail on why children have tantrums, what our child's tantrum can actually reveal about ourselves, step-by-step strategies, what to do when it all goes wrong in inverted commas, and boundaries and connection tips. There'll also be journal prompts to accompany each of the trainings and some wallpaper affirmation card mantras that you can pop on your phone as good reminders, as well as a resource sheet with links and summaries of relevant research. 
So make sure you're signed up to my mailing list through my website if you'd like to be notified when I release this. So just go to drsophiebrock.com and on my homepage it says join here for exclusive content. If you'd like some guidance on how to explore this further on your own, then some of the authors who have really taught me a lot have been Professor Alfie Cohen on the limits of behaviorism. So he says, quote, behaviors are just the protruding tip of the proverbial iceberg. What matters more than what or how much is how come. Dr. Ross Green is another. Uh, he talks about the collaborative problem of solving things with our children um, to foresee emotional outbursts and to help them develop skills to manage and cope with these outbursts instead of being punished and shamed. Dr. Mona Delahook critiques suggestions that we should just ignore crying or tantrums, um, which I think is a really predominant thread in the advice given to parents still. Um, and she argues that we should think of crying as a subconscious appeal for human engagement and connection. Other researchers I found accessible and useful, Dr. Bruce Perry, Dr. Becky Bailey, Dr. Kayleen Henderson, uh, the Circle of Security program is great, Dr. Stuart Shankar, Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Tina Bryson and um, a really great book also by a play therapist called Lisa Dion. In my toddler program I'll go into greater analysis and I'll summarise uh, these researchers and their works. But here is a simplified version of some of the things that I've learned which have helped me understand and deal with my own journey of responding to my daughter's challenging behaviour. Toddlers and small children, they do want to please their parents. They don't enjoy or inherently drive pleasure from upsetting us or causing us stress. And they also don't enjoy hurting other children. They're still developing the knowledge and understanding that their behaviour can have consequences and impacts on other people. And this is part of why they play with emotions and behaviours, to experiment with the power they have or that they don't have in invoking responses from others. These little people, they're inherently good. They don't want to hurt or lash out or lose control of their bodies. A child in tantrum and meltdown is a child who's dysregulated. It's a child who is struggling. A child who is hurting other children is hurting within themselves. Underlying all aggressive behaviour is fear. This was key for me to understand, so I'll say it again. Underlying all aggressive behaviour is fear. There is always a why underlying the behaviour. And that why is almost always either an unmet need, so hunger or tiredness, or perhaps even the search for autonomy or independence. And then there are strategies that you, you can come up with which I won't delve into now, but strategies you can implement to try and scaffold around some of that. Or the underlying the behavior is a dysregulation, so an uncomfortable and big feeling that they're having trouble processing and expressing. When our children act out, think of it as them waving a red flag saying, hey, I'm struggling, I'm not coping, I need help. They're saying, I'm lost, I need you, I need help, I don't know what to do with how I'm feeling. When a child feels these feelings of discomfort and anxiety and stress for whatever reason, they go into a fight or flight mode. And in this mode, they can no longer access their prefrontal cortex of the brain, the part of the brain that deals with reasoning and judgment. Dr. Bruce Perry is an expert on childhood trauma. And he says that when children are in a state of fear, 
brain scans on these children show that there's virtually no activity happening in the thinking part of the brain. It's an evolutionary response to be in this fight or flight mode without being distracted or delayed by our own reasoning and logic. Look into polyvagal theory if you're interested in exploring this further. So when mid-breakdown or when my daughter is mid-hair pull, for example, saying stop or calm down or hey, that is not okay, it's virtually pointless in the moment because our children, when they're in this heightened state, they literally cannot think. Sometimes we can take our children out and into the thinking part of their brain by using certain prompts or phrases or distraction even, but this only works some of the time. And critically, it doesn't deal with the underlying fear or discomfort. It only distracts and suppresses or represses it. In order to truly move back into a state of calm, feelings and emotions need to be felt and moved through not numbed, not distracted, not quelled. And I wonder, I'm just smiling to myself thinking about how much this relates to adults as well. And it's why if you've ever had this experience of your child, you know, throwing a tantrum or being difficult when you're out in a public place, it generally isn't just one challenging interaction that you can then distract and you move through the rest of the outing in peace and contentment. It's often one thing after another, after another, after another, because the discomfort keeps finding opportunities to arise and be expressed. So in this way, challenging behavior, as it feels for us, it's very purposeful for children. They need outlets for expression of this internal turmoil and struggle. So the why of my daughter's hair pulling, why is she doing it? It's because she feels big emotions in her body and then she's become stuck in a looping pattern of hair pulling as her go-to for dealing with these big emotions. The fact this behavior became a looping pattern is likely has a bit to do with the ways I first responded to her through using timeout, through isolation, uh, through expressing my own anger and frustration and disappointment. So my over-the-top and ineffective and shaming techniques of punishment when she first did it actually reinforced her behavior because it reinforced the uncomfortable and scary feelings. When she had big feelings that she experimented with expelling through a certain behavior, my response only served to make those uncomfortable feelings bigger, requiring her to keep continuing with the behavior. And that's how that looping pattern develops. The why for these big feelings erupt, well, in some ways, the reason why they erupt is irrelevant because all toddlers, including my daughter, they're always going to have big feelings at one stage or another. It's just part of what what we deal with. But it is useful to think about and dissect some of the reasons you might be able to uncover behind why these big feelings erupt because perhaps you could make some changes that may help with these feelings. So to give you an example... I noticed with my daughter that exacerbating her behavior and discomfort was being around her dad and all of the tension and anxiety and discomfort and stress that existed between him and I because of the betrayal and hurt I've endured. I'm not blaming myself or really anyone for that. I think I've lifted the feelings of guilt and resentment around this because I know that at the time I was doing and I've always done the best that I can to cope in the situation I was faced with, and I just used the knowledge that I had at the time. And I also know that if I were to chastise myself now and become stuck in regret or in guilt or 
thinking about the ways that things could have been done differently, then that is me being stuck. It's me being involved in my own disconnecting emotional issues, which actually take the focus away from my daughter. Being hard on myself means that my attention and energy is used in a way that contributes to disconnection rather than connection with my child. Maybe there's a message you might like to take away from that that can help you release guilt or anxiety you may be wrestling with around your response to your children and to yourself. And I also want to say that while our children are mirrors of us and the tension or the discomfort that we feel, so they pick up on this and they mirror it back to us, but they also have their own embodied memory and experience. And I know that we cannot discount this. A long story short, though, I may go into this journey another time, but my own healing and discharging of negative emotion around my ex-husband has been part of what I've had to do in order to take the charged energy out of the air to help my daughter. So it was this charged sort of negative energy that she was breathing in, she was absorbing. It was the energy that became uncomfortably infused within her and carried by her. And the hair pulling behavior became a way for her to cope with that. Think of it as pulling on a valve to release that energy, to release that steam, if you will. I remember listening to an Oprah podcast, it was with Eckhart Tolle, and he said that suppressed pain bodies, which is basically like um, heartbreak or pain or upset or discomfort, when they're ongoing, he said they're extremely toxic and actually often more toxic than actively open ones. So I thought at the time that my daughter wouldn't be affected by our divorce because she was only an infant and because we never yelled or fought around her. She wasn't ever exposed openly to disruptive conflict. But actually, probably because she was an infant and babies and young children are so extremely perceptive to energy, she was actually absorbing the repressed toxicity between us. So Eckhart Tolle says that intense emotional negativity it emanates, it radiates. And I think that we can all probably relate to this when we walk into a room and we feel that charged energy, um, you know, the saying of you could cut the air with a knife. It's that type of un understanding and idea. And children pick this energy up and they are forced to act out. They're forced to act out this repressed negativity and they don't have the language to do that. They don't have the language to express it and so they do it through their actions and their behaviours. So the energy and our own emotional energy is a big thing to consider. It's no coincidence that often when we're feeling stressed or we're running late to rush out the door that our kids just aren't cooperating with us. That if we feel slightly uncomfortable or judged in front of a certain peer group or family, um, sometimes it can be the case that our children's behavior actually ramps up and becomes even more challenging to deal with. It's because they're literally regulating sponges. They sense and feel and act out the stress of those around them. Even though they're so much bigger than little infants and babies, toddlers and young children, they still heavily rely on co-regulation through their nervous system. So if we as caregivers aren't regulated internally, if we feel frantic, our children will often physically act out our internal chaos. There are also a myriad of ways that their little worlds can feel overwhelming, 
For example, if they've just had a little brother or sister arrive, their whole world's been shifted and disrupted. If they're going through a particular physical or emotional developmental leap, perhaps they're feeling overwhelmed and daunted by that. Maybe they're starting at a new care setting. Uh, do you ever have the experience of your child coming home from a daycare or preschool or a stay at their grandparents' house and they were apparently so well behaved but then as soon as they get home they flip out and their behaviour is just off the charts. This is totally normal and actually a great sign because they've stored up their emotions and feelings while in another care setting and then once they're home with you in their safe place with their safe person, you're the container for their feelings for them to offload. They're in their safe place and they feel that they can release all their difficult and big emotions through their behaviours. Through their behaviours and their tantrums and their crying and their clinginess and their whining, they're basically saying, have you got me? Here is everything that's inside of me. Can you hold this for me? This is too much for me to carry on my own. And beyond perhaps these bigger transitions and experiences, there are lots of day-to-day -day things that can erupt big feelings in children. You know, something as simple as they're building something or experimenting with a toy and become frustrated and overwhelmed. If another child takes a toy away from them, if they see something they want and can't have, the same way that we face everyday annoyances and frustrations and disappointments, they do too. It's just that we have developed and mature brains and we have the capacity for self-regulation and expressive language and self-control. And we all know that even though we have this capacity to process and deal with our emotions, we often don't draw on these tools or we struggle to or we need additional help and support. I often think this when I'm starting to feel myself going offline, when my daughter is doing something that is really testing me or challenging my capacity to keep calm. I start to feel it bubbling up. Do you know what I mean? When you're feeling your own internal energy rising and rising. And this is the point when we should be implementing a boundary to safeguard ourselves and our children. But this doesn't always happen, of course. And there'll be other external life factors that contribute to our own dysregulation and internal struggles as well. And in those moments where I'm facing that immense challenge, I remind myself, okay, if this is how much I'm struggling with this, imagine how it would be for my child. If I, a grown adult with all of the knowledge and tools and language and capacity and the resources, if I'm struggling here to regulate myself, what chance do I have of expecting my daughter to do it for me or to do the same? It's really, really hard. And if, or should I say, when you have done something like yelled or spoken sharply or abruptly to your child, in the moment, it's almost as if you can feel the control you've lost because you have, you've lost control. You're so dysregulated that you are not acting from a place of thoughtful rationality. This might be confronting to say or talk about because it's very counterculture and it's very counter image of the good mother. The good mother never loses her cool, right? Maternal rage, it's part of this conversation, which I think is still very taboo to talk about, but I'd argue is pretty prolific in a culture of intensive and isolated motherhood such as ours. But to get to what you actually do when your toddler is displaying challenging behaviour. So let's go through an example. Say my daughter has just thrown a cup of water on the ground. The first thing to do, obviously make sure your child's safe, 
in a safe place, then you check in with yourself mentally. So how are you doing? Do you have the space to hold this? Do you have the space to be here? Can you be the container for your child's feelings that they need? Remember, it is all about modeling and co-regulation. You might need to do some parenting of yourself in order to parent your child through this. And while I'll go through this in greater detail in the training program, here are some tips to do in the moment. So the first thing to do is to ground yourself. Wiggle your toes. Notice your feet flat on the ground. Hold something of texture, so a button on your top. Or put your palm against the carpet. You are bringing yourself back into your body to then be able to offer grounded presence. Secondly, understand and then name your feeling. Accept where you are without anticipating how to change it. Third step is to express how you're feeling. If you feel that it's appropriate, then verbally name your emotion. And this can be a helpful practice to model for your child too. Or do some big deep breaths or repeat a mantra that you resonate with. Um, even internally, sometimes I think to myself, you know, she's not having, um, she's not giving me a hard time. She's having a hard time. You know, I can do this. I am the captain of this ship. I am the leader. You know, whatever resonates for you. Now that you've created this gap uh, between the behavior and your response, you can actually respond rather than just have a snap reaction. The fifth step I've said is ensure you're at their level. So whether that be down on the ground or position your body near them, try to make eye to contact. And if they're avoiding eye contact, this is often even more of a sign that they're needing an emotional release or an opportunity to offload feelings to you. Number six, in this scenario, if my daughter seemed responsive and she kept my eye contact, I would be running through my head, what are some contributing factors to her expressed discomfort? So is she hungry? Is she thirsty? Is she needing her body to move? Is she needing to jump? Have I been distracted from her? Does she need me to plug in and have some playtime? You know, what's going on here? Asking the question of what is underneath the behavior, because this then influences how you'll respond. Number seven, if I had been able to regulate myself and I felt that her needs had all been met, and if she was maintaining my eye contact, I would say something like, you threw your cup and now water is all over the floor, and pause to see how she responds. Depending on her reaction, I may then reinforce a boundary, such as I won't let you throw things inside. But sometimes this can be ineffective because they very well know the boundary, but this knowledge hasn't meant they've been able to stop themselves doing the behavior. So again, depending on her response, I'd likely then say something like, I'm concerned someone will slip on the floor now that water's everywhere. And then pause again, hoping it's an opportunity for her to initiate a problem-solving response. Otherwise, I'd encourage her to find a way to clean the water up and reiterate the message, you know, that her feelings are okay, the behavior's not, give her alternatives, reinforce the boundary of what I will or won't allow. And something that I've learned from Janet Lansbury um, here is that it's important to not be vague when giving our children responses and directions. So oftentimes, you know, we may talk in third person or say we, um, but Janet Lansbury says that we should try and reinforce our personhood, you know, I, to say that, you know, this is what I want you to do, have that personal connection with them, and also remind them everyone makes mistakes, and it's important that 
we come up with strategies and ways to respond to the mistakes that we make. Going back a little bit though, if she's avoiding my eye contact, so sometimes she could cheekily you know, talk back, she could ignore me, um, she could even try and throw something else. Some children might hit or push if you move into their space to respond to them. And I would see this as a sign of intensified dysregulation and the need to have that emotional release. In this case, I would pick her up, I would move her to a safe and fairly confined place where we sit together, and I position my body in a way that prevents her running off. I just sit away from her, and I don't really have to do much here other than focus on my own regulation and be the soft place for them to release their anger or fears or frustrations. You want them to have that emotional release, that tantrum, basically. It's like you're ripping the band-aid off and then you're being there to catch the fallout. As my daughter cries and often rages against me, I may offer gentle words of support or love, such as, I hear you're really angry, darling. And this often makes her rage even worse. But this is a positive sign. It's a signal that she is realizing that I've got this, that I've got her, that this is safe, that she can just let it all out. My daughter doesn't respond to this, but some children might like to be invited to kick or punch a pillow, uh, stomp their feet. I'll say to her throughout, you know, I'm here for a cuddle when you're ready and try and maintain eye contact with them. I notice with my daughter, she will seem calm and like the storm has passed in a sense, and then I'll try and look her in the eyes and then she loses it again. But eventually, if you can stay with it, if you can keep yourself regulated and present, you'll make it through the storm. You'll get to that other side of peace. They know how to do the work of their own regulation. They know how to process their feelings. We just need to facilitate the space and the presence for them to do that. But it is really hard work and it is emotionally exhausting. And if you can't stay with it for whatever reason, then know that that's okay. Sometimes I just don't have it in me. I've been too pushed, too tested, too triggered myself, and so I make the choice not to stay with those feelings and we stop. This is also very hard to manage on playdates with friends or in public, when you don't necessarily have the space or capacity to sit presently with your child and give focused and sustained attention. But know that an opportunity, it's never lost. In other words, similar to what I've said earlier, if the emotion isn't expressed and worked through here, it will come up at another time in another form. So you know what now is actually quite funny to admit. I look forward to my daughter having tantrums when we're at home together because I know that I generally have the privacy and emotional space to deal with them. I know that she's offloading in a safe and contained place and that it will likely result in a child who's easier to deal with for the rest of the day or when we go out. It's like she clears up her stored emotional energy and gets it out. And um, it's this weight of agitation and frustration that's lifted off her shoulders. So I look for opportunities to do this at home and I'm sensitive to it because these opportunities can come through in small ways at first. So, you know, wanting the round plate instead of the square one, wanting to go outside but then whining and wanting to come back inside, you know, wanting to be picked up and then put down. Tune into the agitation, tune into the irritation, tune into the discomfort, then set the boundary for them. Give them something to push back against because otherwise they'll keep asking you for it through their behaviours. 
ways that you can help them work through emotional releasing other than through tantruming and crying is through laughing and through playing. Crying, laughing and playing, that's how kids regulate and that's how they process emotions. A caveat here though is that laughing doesn't include tickling, which is a response to an overactivated nervous system. But they need the hugs, they need security, they need the deep squeezes. There are things that you can encourage with play and physical movement which stimulate the vestibular and proprioceptive systems, stimulating the cerebellum to help improve the ability for emotional regulation in your children. These things can fire up the sections of the brain in that prefrontal cortex to help them feel calm, to help them feel regulated. So swinging, jumping, bouncing, dancing, pushing against a wall or against our open palms. They will likely actually just do these things themselves if they have the opportunity for free play and we can watch it unfold. I hope this episode has been helpful for you to think about some of the reasons why your child may behave the way they do and that it may help you in responding to them when things feel really big and challenging. Importantly, I hope this information helps to release feelings of guilt or overwhelm or any frustration you may feel because this is hard. Parenting is hard work. It's ever-evolving. Every child is different and they respond differently to different strategies and we have to experiment and try out what's going to work. We can help ourselves and our children by adjusting our expectations of them and of ourselves. This is a tough time for them and it's such a critical point in their lives for growth and for figuring out who they are as independent but also dependent people. The work that you are doing in caring for and responding to them is important work. You're setting down the foundational swab for their life and their future relationships. And this is hard and it's transformative work for you too. Mothering young children thrusts us onto a path of challenge and growth that's unparalleled. So be kind to yourself and remember to head over to my website, drsophiebrock.com. Follow me at the good enough underscore mother to keep up to date with the information I release and to connect with me further. I hope you've resonated or connected with something from today's episode. Please reach out and connect with me on Instagram at the good enough mother or through my website, drsophiebrock.com. Thank you for joining me.